Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Go check them out. Without them, we couldn't do this podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. And before we start the show, we always look at each other like, did you bring something to start? And I was like, I don't know. Did you? And you said, I kind of got something. And I said, what was it? And you said, it's about cannabis and psychedelics. And I just don't know. And then our guest was like, everybody's talking about that. So let's yeah. talk about it a little bit. Well, I... You know, I uh, being a professor, I get stuff comes across my email, like, you know, alerts for the latest research and things. And lately there have been several different research articles, which I haven't taken a deep dive into. But uh, something that I think we in the business have known for a long time uh, that is starting to become more accepted by the general public. And that is that uh, some people have an intolerance uh, to cannabis and the high levels of THC which are becoming higher as people vape instead of smoke. Um, and that is causing psychosis, very similar to uh, schizophrenia. So a lot of people can be misdiagnosed instead of the technical diagnosis would be psychosis induced, um, you know, cannabis use disorder. So the, the, the psychosis is just like schizophrenia and schizophrenia is probably one of the more destructive and for the, for the public kind of scary types of, mental health disorders, and it just means that a person struggles with uh, hallucinations and delusions. They have a hard time not being able to uh, or being able to function normally, hearing voices, seeing things that aren't really there. And that those same symptoms can be a result of cannabis use. So one of the things that's been sort of discouraging to me as somebody who works with a lot of adolescents here in, in Salt Lake is that in the last 18 years that I've been here doing this, uh, the, the, of course, the ideas around marijuana have changed a lot to the point where I know that a lot of teachers, even in our public schools, are saying, oh, marijuana is good. It's, it's, it helps you in a lot of different ways. And, and as we're seeing it become more legal in different states and more research being done on, we are finding that there may be some pain management benefits and a few other things. Uh, but for the most part, people still don't, you know, they need to embrace the idea that it really is dangerous. And it's a drug. It's a drug. And you don't, none of us really know how we're going to react to things that we put into our bodies. We've had how many examples on our show of people who, you know, took a lot of heavy drugs and it didn't do much, yet then they did one thing and then that was their DOC forever. And we just don't know how we're going to react. Yours was Bud Light. Some other kid out there right now uh, is going to be trying marijuana for the first time this weekend. And that might be something his brain can't tolerate. You know, it, it, let's dissect uh, the cannabis topic for just a little bit. Because, I mean, it, 
20 years ago in college, I mean, this is was prevalent all over the campus. Don't panic, man. It's organic. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, they would say if that. If it rhymes, yeah. yeah they, but they would say that all the time. I mean, sure. God gave it to us, man. This is all right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you'd walk around and people would be pl- throwing the Frisbee and playing SEPA or hacky. And they'd be like, one day weed's going to be legal for everyone, man. It's going to be the best thing ever. And I'm like, it's never going to be legal. And here it is legal. Hey, and you, I you, think the people are are, are kind of trying to figure it out what right. it really is all about. And we've had people on here that say marijuana is a gateway drug. We've had people on here say, no, it's not a gateway drug. You don't know that. I think the conversation needs to be had with our youth. And the tolerance is going up the THC. Back 20 years ago, you weren't having this high potency right. of marijuana. Well, just like any uh, organic material, you can breed it for certain qualities. You can do. You can have you know different colored strawberries. If you go down to the 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 orchard, you can see that's what they you, they can breed that or watermelons that have a certain color inside that they don't normally have. And you can do that with THC levels in marijuana. And of course, that's what's happened over the last fifty years is people have become expert at breeding different strains there's of marijuana. A, I think there's a indica. Uh, and then there's a sativa. They're the two different kinds that, that people do. And then they can crossbreed. And, and there are variations yeah. of, of that. But I'll tell you the, the thing that I'm most concerned about is uh, are the, the pens. And so just like you have people who are smoking a cigarette versus vaping uh, nicotine, you can have much higher uh, levels of nicotine in what they're vaping. Same thing with THC and, in marijuana. And so kids uh, are being misled to believe that marijuana is not harmful in any way. And the research that's coming out on marijuana is saying that's actually not true. Let's, and let's talk about this because uh, early on in this podcast, you talked about why the drinking age was 21 and it should be more like 23, 25. And you said the reason why is because we weren't developed enough up in our brain up in the mental health. Is that still correct? Uh, so the reason I would push that number back farther is you, we now know that you have cognitive neurodevelopment through your mid twenties. Mm-hmm. And so we know alcohol kills brain cells. So we're working against our own neurodevelopment when you start using drugs and, and alcohol at a young age. And so our youth, who somehow now weed is getting a pass or more socially acceptable, probably more accessible than it's ever been. I can tell you right now, a teenager in Salt Lake City, it's much easier for them to get marijuana than alcohol. Really? Absolutely. And they, they can just walk down to a variety of parks and public places and at school and they can get it. And, and alcohol, because it's controlled, is harder for them to get. They either have to have someone buy it for them or... You know, swipe it from their parents' liquor cabinet or something like that. It's a little bit harder to get your hands on. And now it's coming in all kinds of different varieties. Have you ever been to uh, a weed store? No. I've been to a weed store. Okay. Uh, and you go in there and you can get cookies. You can get drinks. All the different You can edibles, get lotion. Yeah. You can get gummies. You can get gum. You can get drops. You can get it in all these different ways. Right. Now, back 20 years ago when I was in college, it was easy to find out who were the weed smokers were because there was a puff of cloud and they always smelled like it. I think it was more like 25, 30 years ago. You okay. Well, I'm, yeah. If you want to age saying. me, I'm not the one wearing a cardigan. <laughs> I love my cardigan. Man. You know what I mean? But but yeah, but but I mean, now it is easily 
hideable? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You don't have to smoke it. You don't have to light anything up. And in fact, different states have different rules. My understanding is that for medical marijuana in the state of Utah, you can't put flame to flower. You can't light it that way. But you have, like you just said, dozens of other options for how to take in the THC. All right. Now, before we get to our guest, I want to talk about something that seems to be rampant all over the uh addiction websites and people talking about this California sober. Have you heard about California sober? I have not. Tell me about it. So California sober means you're not doing the hard drugs. You're just drinking and smoking a little marijuana. And so you're abstaining from all the really reckless stuff. I'm doing the air quotes here, Mm -hmm. but you're just California sober. Is that what they call it? And so Miley Cyrus, and I I think there was another pop star that said she was California sober. Now, she just came out and said, hey, look, I'm not California sober anymore because that was ruining (laughs) my life as well. But, you know, people negotiate their sobriety until you figure out, hey – and that's a common theme in almost all of our guest stories is negotiating your sobriety, basically lying to yourself using different defense mechanisms to justify your behavior. And that's what your brain does to you. You're working against those aspects of your brain when you're trying uh, to get sober because your brain doesn't want to let go of the substance. So, sure, we've uh, I mean, it sort of makes some weird rational sense. Oh, if I'm not going to do, you know, heroin or cocaine, but I'll just drink spritzers and smoke a little weed. And it's like, well, on the continuum, yeah, but we know plenty of people, yourself included, where Bud Lights ruined their life. I was two days into rehab, got phone passes, called my mom. I said, Mom. She goes, yes, son. I go, I'm in the wrong place. She goes, why? I said, there's people in here for heroin and meth and Adderall. I'm in here for Bud Light. I don't think I'm in the right place. You know what my mom said? Shut the F up. You're in the right place. Yep. Love your mom, man. <laughs> yeah. She didn't spare any words. She was right. like, nope, you're definitely in the right place. Right. And she was right. And addiction is, you know, addiction is addiction. And you can you can have uh, a severe addiction to something like a street drug like heroin. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that wrecks your life. But I think uh, if you look at the numbers, more people's lives are ruined by alcohol than they are by heroin. More people use alcohol and become alcoholics than heroin addicts. Because it's socially acceptable to some right. to some degree. And this and California sober is a justification, right? It's just justifying your use of drinking because you, somehow adding sober to the end softens it up. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Hey, uh, we're glad you stopped by to listen to the show today. We've got a wonderful guest for you. Her name is Debbie Nelson. She's with Maple Mountain Mental Health and Wellness. She's got a story to tell, but she's also doing some amazing things with amino acids and neuroscience when it comes to recovery. Stick around. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. 
now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Debbie Nelson. She's with Maple Mountain Mental Health and Wellness. Uh, We're going to find out more about that at the end of the program. But before we get to that, Debbie, you got a story to share. Uh, Yeah, I've got a story to share. I'm probably like a lot of um, middle-aged women that like drop off, and I call myself, I was kind of like an alcoholic prodigy. What does that mean? Well, uh, I really experienced severe trauma in my life. And at 38 years old, someone had said I started just not sleeping. I didn't sleep. And um, someone, I owned a store and I worked all the time. They said, well, have you ever tried wine? Let's have a glass of wine. So it seemed like a very sophisticated thing to do. So that glass of wine turned into a box of wine turned into vodka. Wow. So before we get into how a glass turned into a box, into a bottle of vodka, you said it started with some trauma. Is this trauma when you were a little girl or was this just trauma throughout your life that was was just kind of a a building trauma? It was building. um, And I think the last, it was like I had some something that was extremely traumatic that had happened and I was dealing with a business that wasn't quite doing well. I had five children. I went through a divorce. There was just a lot of things that all of a sudden surfaced, and uh, I went in. I, I'm a very ADD sort of person. Someone said, try, try this Adderall, and that was wonderful. That worked just wonderful for me. It gave me what I needed. So now, did you tr- did you start the Adderall before yeah. the, the, the wine? Yeah, and then it was a combination because there's no way you can be taking an amphetamine and not have that affect your uh, you know, sleep patterns and such. Wait, so, now I, I got to stop you because, Dr. Matt, I think this is the first time on this podcast where somebody has said they take Adderall and then said it's an amphetamine. Uh, and, and, it uh, is. It is. But I, I, a lot of times I don't think people associate it with like that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. People may not know. I mean, they just go by the trade name and a lot of us are very just kind of, okay, doc, whatever the doc says. Uh, in the prescription, but it's an amphetamine and it, that's why it's abusable. That's why it's highly controlled. Uh, a lot of psychiatric medicines are not, you know, like Prozac is, you can't really abuse Prozac. You, you take too much. It's not good for you, but it's, it's not a, a recreational drug, but something like, like Adderall, it can be if you take it the wrong way. Um, I would say that it, it doesn't have to, if it's, if it's prescribed properly and taken properly, it doesn't have to interrupt your sleep patterns because of the short half-life of those sorts of medicines that fall in that family. Uh, if there is usually taken in the morning, if you're taking the right dose that's for your body size and type and all of that, everybody's a little different. But for the most part, by 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the major effects have worn off. And that's actually why some kids who need it during school, they come home and they struggle doing their homework because they might need a little booster dose. However... Most adults who are just told by a friend, hey, why don't you try this Adderall, are not taking it appropriately. They're not being evaluated. They're, they don't have the right dose. And like we, we've known, they're, they're taking it. Sometimes people crush and snort it or they double, triple, quadruple a normal dose. And uh, just like any amphetamine, it can be very dangerous for your cardiovascular health. Certainly, it's going to mess with your ability to sleep well and rest. So it's one of those drugs that when it's used appropriately can be very, very helpful. I've seen it just absolutely help people. And then, unfortunately, I see a lot of abuse 
of Adderall and the drugs that fall in that that family. Now, I want to stop you real quick because uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm naive on a lot of things. But what is an amphetamine? The easiest way to put it is it's a stimulant drug. So there are a lot of stimulant drugs. Caffeine is a stimulant drug. Um, amphetamines or methamphetamines are are stimulants. Cocaine's a stimulant. So they stimulate synaptic uh, activity in at the very smallest levels of your brain, and you kind of feel energy. You feel focus. If it's a if if you are struggling developing that normally in your brain, if you really have a neurodevelopmental problem like ADHD, mm-hmm. then it should bring you kind of up to normal. Baseline. Baseline, where you're kind of on a level playing field with everyone else. And the person, him or herself, will often experience that as like, wow, this is amazing. I can actually sit down and focus. And, and you're like, yeah, that's what a regular brain does. And you've just been struggling with a brain disorder. So did but, you find that on That you, was tremendous for me. So when I first took it, this is how much I didn't know about Adderall, is I took it and I, the do- I went back and the doctor said, well, how is it? And I said, well, it really made me tired. So it's a very high-powered amphetamine, actually. So that's a sign truly of someone who does have that disorder because it actually did slow my very overactive brain, and Mm -hmm. I was able to focus. Now, what happens and what I learned later on that I'll get to is that 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 dependency is because we keep developing more neurotransmitters, and so that's why the need for a higher dose keeps on going up. That window of effectiveness narrows and narrows. Um, so it was, it was very effective. And again, like I said, you know, as prescribed, so that was my start of it. And it is very frequently that it's counteracted with sleep problems that people will have, children will have. Um, and you know, at the, at the beginning I didn't abuse it. I, I didn't have any abuse. Took as directed. Took as directed. And then, um, but I, I had sleep to sleep problems. So then, you know, which is again, is a very common thing with trauma and things going on. You're deplete, depleting what you have going on. I talked to you on the way in and we were talking mm-hmm. about that. And Dr. Matt, I've said this on the podcast before, uh, you know, to help me get to sleep at night when I was really hard in my active addiction, uh, even before that, it was two beers always did the job. You know, two beers would quiet my brain. Yeah. Two beers would get me not thinking about what I needed to do and what I had done. It would bring the anxiety down. It would just oh, kind of absolutely. numb me out. And yeah. then two became four, four became right. six. And then right. we all know how that goes. I ended up in rehab. Yeah. Um, so you started drinking a little bit of wine? To- um, I, I would start with the wine and eventually it was a box of wine in my closet. You know, because no, I didn't want people to know how bad this really was. And um, so I escalated into that very quickly where that became my pattern where it was like I needed something to wake me up because I was drinking so much at night to go to sleep to deal with the trauma that was going on and everything that was in my life at that point. And this became my coping. And um, I owned a vintage store at the time. It was quite large actually and I, one of my – I started realizing that maybe I – Maybe this is a problem. And, you know, when you first get into this, you start saying, and if you have an ounce of intellect, and, of course, the older that you are and your mom and, you know, all of this, you're like, um, I, can, I can stop this. I can stop this at any point. You know, you keep thinking, when did this really start becoming a problem? And is it really a problem? I don't think it's really a problem. So you're on that roller coaster that um, we know a lot about where there are, 
you know, you, you get so you take something mm-hmm. to get up in the morning and get you going, and then you need something at the end of the day to kind of help right. you relax and get down. And pretty soon that window gets smaller and smaller Small. and smaller and smaller to where you can't, you know, your your body habituates, your tolerance goes up, mm-hmm. and and the things that used to work aren't working, and so your doses are going higher. And a lot of times people have told me they they end up taking stuff almost at the same time. Right? They're like instead of it being just the morning and late at night, right? One to get up, one to get down. By noon, they're taking them both because they're just trying to function. And I'm going to hazard a guest here. I'm, I'm going to say that that probably became the case with you where you were drinking and taking Adderall at the same time. Uh, probably. I mean, at the at the moment, you know, like I started escalating to realizing, geez, I'm drinking a lot of wine. And then as a woman, you're like, well, that's a lot of calories. So then I started – I was telling you earlier, I, vodka cleans everything. So I'd clean it with glass and – and uh, chrome underneath it, and and some of my worst uh, episodes that happened, they someone they literally had to break the window down to get me out of my store. Um, I don't remember because I went in and I started cleaning the table. And I think at that time I was thinking Wait, I'll just hold, take a little swig. Hold on, hold on. You're cleaning things with vodka. Vodka. Oh, I'm here to tell you, vodka will remove paint. Okay. From things. I didn't know that. I did. I mean. Yeah. I can guess, yeah. but I've never actually met somebody who. So you had this vintage store, so you yep. would have had a lot of products that probably need a little touch up, a yep. little shine. Yeah. And so you you started off using that. Why didn't you just use a regular cleaning product? Well, Why the vodka? someone had told me, and and it, you just buy cheap vodka, and it literally will clean the chrome and make it look brand Real new shiny, or, or huh? glass or you know anything. Okay. Again. That's that's the progression of what we're talking about. Your mentality. Let's. Be I was going to say it's You're kind drinking. of addict thinking, right? right like, exactly. Say, are you drinking? You go, no, I'm cleaning. Cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm at work here. I'm getting yeah. stuff done. Come on, what are you yeah. thinking? No. So right. I remember. I just think that's it. great because it's it cheaper to go to the Smiths <laughs> and buy some cleaning products than it is to go to truck over to the the, the liquor store and buy a bottle of vodka, but. Uh, that's how an addict brain sort of justifies behavior. Two right. birds, one stone. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I'd heard about it, and so I, I'll, the only thing I recall was taking that swig, and the next thing I know, I remember vaguely hearing hearing my daughter knocking at my door and thinking, I don't want her to see me like this. At this point, I knew that I was intoxicated, and I I hid. I don't remember anything further until the next morning, waking up and looking at a ceiling fan. And I said, God, I got to get back to my store. And my son-in-law at the time said, you need shoes because there's glass everywhere. And they had literally broke my front window because all they could see was this shattered chrome, this table shattered in there and thought that I was bleeding to death inside. So then after something of that nature, you think, oh, I'm for sure done. No. I mean, there was incident after incident where I started realizing that my alcoholism had gotten to a point where I literally had to, I would get in my car and realize I had alcohol between my seats and didn't recall going to the liquor store to buy it. Mm. That's the maddening part about this disease. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, you said it so eloquently there that, you know, you thought that would be like, hey, I got to get this in order, but no. Mm -mm. Multiple incidents after that. Multiple. I mean, I, I was 114, I lived in Arizona, 114 degrees, the only reason I'm alive was my daughter forgot her dance shoes and they had to drive back, circle back, and I was in the driveway, head down uh, on the concrete at 114. Wow. Yes. And, you know, the you, you mentioned, like, oh, you would think that would stop me. But 
the interesting thing about how our brain works through uh, behavioral reinforcement is this scary thing happened. It was really traumatic, but it all worked out, you know, and so your brain kind of goes, oh, we're okay. And so then the next time you're in a similar situation, your brain kind of goes, this is kind of like that other thing that was kind of lousy, but we were okay with that. We'll probably be okay with this. And so your brain sort of starts to work against itself by saying we, we got through that last thing and we'll get through this next thing and that therefore it justifies continuing to drink. In my active addiction, I can go back and tell you about almost every great time I had while drinking, Mm -hmm. but I'd struggle to find all the times that I messed up. Now in my sobriety, I look back and I can tell you and I can pinpoint and I can show you all the times I messed up. And I've had to sit through those and I've had to come to, you know, Okay, to be okay with you it. have to you have to accept yourself in order to and move I can't, on. I can't go back and change it, and right. I know it happened. But back in my active addiction, I blatantly put that out of my brain. And sure, you, people could have come up to me and said, "Remember this?" I go, nope, I don't. Yeah, don't remember it, but now I do. Yeah. So we're going to find out more about Debbie's story. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Debbie Nelson with Maple Mountain Mental Health and Wellness. She's talking about her, uh, I guess, ascent or descent. Which one is it? It depends on your perspective. (laughs) Uh, Into alcoholism. And you didn't start drinking until you were what age? 38. Uh, Before that, did you ever experiment? Did you ever, like, in high school, nothing? No, so I was the good Mormon girl. And... um, I like to say that that's probably one of the parts that so many people are suffering within the religion that they'll find something and then it's kind of hidden. They don't want to talk about it. Um, But matter of fact, I think even in early sobriety, it was like, well, I don't want to. You mean I'm not one of those people. And the bottom line is that I, I started my career or my knowledge of substances or abuse later in life, I would evolve to that to a higher level just the same as anyone else if I had started when I was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So opposite of you saying I have all these great memories partying, I associate drinking with dealing to numb the trauma and other issues that were going on in my life. Um, So it was not something I look back on necessarily and say that was great. That was just what... It was self-medicating. It was self-medicating. And I think many, many people that have addiction issues uh, will attest to that, that it's self-medicating. Something that's the trauma, self-medicating an imbalance that's going on in their life, and it addresses it so well that that's what they do. So after multiple incidences of you drinking a vodka cleaner... <laughs> um, right. Did Listen, this, that was it. I'm, I'm here to tell you. No, I know. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I'm telling you. And, and you said your bro, your son-in-law and your kids you know, were like, hey, you got to get some shoes on. There's glass everywhere. Does this come to a boiling point or how long do you try to navigate uh, this, um, this road? I continued to do it when I passed out the last time and I was at 114 degrees. Um, at that point, my sister, uh, Danette Forward, was in the industry that was up here. And she was like, you need to get help. And I, at that point, I remember the only thing I could even admit to at that point was saying, uh, I think I called her and I was very hungover and I said, I need help. And uh, that's all I said. So she immediately put this in order. Now, she knew all too well that that quickly would be backed out. You know, immediately I'm thinking, this is nuts. You almost want to take it back right, out of, uh, right exactly. after it comes out of your mouth. Uh, so I, I, I 
I, my story is also a very spiritual story, a story because I remember at that point almost blasphemously praying, like, I don't want to hear any little voice in my head that I'm supposed to go somewhere. I need a big I want big sign. something that is huge. I want you to burn it in the lawn. So I'm out cleaning out my work van that I used to haul things in. So I'm thinking, I don't want people to really know how bad this problem is. Because, mm-hmm. you know, most people... Well, there's so, a lot of shame yeah. around alcoholism especially i think in your case where a person is doing it just primarily as self-medication right so there's shame around having problems in the first place and then there's shame about how a person's dealing with their problems and of course people do all sorts of things to try to hide it right so i blasphemously said this prayer said burn it in the lawn went out start cleaning out my van with a big trash bag thinking i don't want my family people to find how bad this and, and you know anyone that has addiction issues realizes you find those bottles everywhere you find the pill bottles everywhere that you've put underneath the seat You've stored them in stashed where stashed everywhere. Stashed everywhere. Yeah. Beer, so I literally, yeah, yeah. You li- I literally had this trash bag in 114 degree heat, and a man came over that was a neighbor, and I didn't really know him. And he's standing there, and he's sweating, and I'm sweating. I'm looking at him. He says, "You know, I don't know whether you know this, but my wife and I we pray for people in the neighborhood." And I'm thinking, "Did my mother send you?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I am not in the best of mood at this point. And he's like, I'm looking, I'm like, okay, well, you know, give me your pamphlet, whatever you're going to do. And he says, I just want you to know for three nights, I've not been able to sleep. Okay. Again, give me your pamphlet. And I just have to deliver a message that he sees you and he knows you and he loves you. Now I think I can go to sleep now. And he left. And that was my mess because at that point, immediately, I was thinking, I don't think I'm going to do this. I'm not going. And I saw that as a very clear directive that I was on the right path that I really did need to do this. Now, it's not to say that your recovery story, you go places, you still have this part of you, that egocentric part of you that says, I've got this. I don't, they don't know what they're talking about. And I They've know, never met a person like me. Yeah, they don't know what I am or what I'm doing. And I have story after story. So I challenge anyone I ever talk to or deal with to say, put it to the test. I don't care whether you believe in God, whether you meditate, but if something's right for you, it's going to blight You're going to be driven to the people and the places that will help you. So that very same day, that you were praying, this fellow stops and, and stops out yeah. right there out in the long Yeah, wow. so that's I left. A, that's impressive. I left and then uh, met another person on the plane. All I could think about was that I had business class. I was going to get two drinks, so at least I'd be able to drink on my way. Another lady sits beside me, and I've got a hot guy that's in line. I'm thinking, this trip is not going to be bad. <laughs> Good looking guy, got two drinks. Lady says, looks like Rose from the Titanic. I'm really sorry. I don't drink. Do you want mine? Uh-uh. It's even better. Right, you got four now. Yeah, I have four drinks. Like, this is not going to be bad at all. I get there, good-looking guy, and then the little old lady looks like Rose that gave me her drink ticket says, do you mind if I sit next to that young woman instead? Sure. So she sits next to me, and she happens to be an author. One of her poems, she looks at it, and I'm looking. I saw you're an author, and she's telling about her beautiful marriage. And I've written this book, and I'm going out, and I'm getting it published. And I'm like, I don't want to hear this. 
and proceeds to then uh, show me one of her poems, and it was on regrets and how they mirrored your door. And I thought, God, I guess. So that right then the drink cart comes up. He says, do you want a drink? No, I'm not going to have a drink. And it was like story after story that on this path – I kept saying, what's my next step? What am I missing in this picture? Because I don't want to be this for the rest of my life. So where am I going to need to go? Or what do I need to learn? Or how do I need to heal? Because this this has to stop. And you never stop having those doorways open, pathways of experience if you truly want to get better. If you want to get better. But I challenge people all the time, just because that didn't work, there's thousands of modalities and things out there that will work. Mm-hmm. Don't get discouraged because you someone says, well, I don't believe in 12. I don't like 12. Great. You don't like 12 step? There's many other modalities and other places that are support. There's other things for people. So that was, you know, one of many. I went to uh, Maple Mountain, um, an extremely ethical business owner, always kept in contact with his people. Um, got sober and, but I heard the standard thing. Cause I mean, at the time, Maple Mountain was still new and it was standardized rehab. And what do you mean by standardized rehab? So I say the business model standardized, everyone's heard the story or the speech, you know, look to your right, that person's going to be dead more than likely in this room and look to your left, this person's going to be out. So out of this room in here, there's probably going to be two of you that are going to survive the disease of addiction. You were told this in rehab. In rehab, and which I is a, very common. I had a similar one. When, I mean, I walked in there, I walked by the same girl for three days in a row and every time I saw her, she'd go, 13. I finally got the guts to go, what do you mean 13? She goes, 13% of us are going to make it. I go, what? And she goes, yeah, that's the statistics. And I was like, oh. I said, well, I'm going to be one of them. She goes, how do you know? I go, because I get to decide. Right. And so, but that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really what the numbers are out there. And I don't even know if they're that high anymore. I think it's below even 10%. So the business women, woman and me and just my age, I immediately started thinking there's something wrong with this picture then. Something terribly wrong. Because if we had cancer and someone says you have a less than 10% success rate, how many people give up? Because this is the business model they've been taught, that you have uh, 12-step meetings and you have rehab. or That's your rehab and you have uh, counseling and you have medication. I left with a big bag now of medication to manage my, you know, mental health issues, which were evident. Obviously, I was self-medicating. But when I left, I kept saying, what else am I not – what else do I need to know? What else do I need to learn in this whole journey? So um, I got introduced to energy healing and energy work, which was a huge factor and a huge builder for me. Again, it was a modality that I utilized. But more importantly, when I went to this training to learn it, this gal was sitting beside me, and she kept kind of saying, I don't know why I'm here. I'm, this one just doesn't really connect with me. She was very, you know, intolerant. I, I've learned other. Mm-hmm. And um, day two, she looked over at me, and she said, I know why. You're going to work with uh, Julia Ross. She wrote The Mood Cure. You need to go home and read that. A lady told you this? She just told me. So I went home, and I read The Mood Cure, and a light bulb went off. And uh, I did, I served on the Alliance for Addiction Solutions. I became trained in amino acid therapy. 
And it was an absolute life-changing thing for me. Just reading the book alone, The Mood Cure, was huge life-changer because I said, well, if someone had told me this piece... Now, like I said, the trauma was what kicked off kind of all of these other self-medicating factors. And um, so reading it, I thought... How come more, there aren't more people that are learning this piece in rehab centers, in addiction recovery? Uh, because the truth is there's, there's pioneers that are in it that have done 30 years of substantial scientific research. Kenneth Blum um, has written several books that studied the alcoholic brain. And what he learned was that um, our frontal cortex becomes engaged in addictive behaviors. And that's why you'll see the entire, uh, you know, population of rehab people that are standing outside of an NA or a meeting drinking enormous amounts of caffeine, rock stars, you know, eating enormous amounts of sugar and smoking and vaping. And it's because it's addressing those imbalances that, that we all have now. So my mindset was like, we are really dealing with an epidemic of mental health issues that spur our addiction. It's all reversed. We're talking about addiction and not talking about the mental health that's spurring why people are reaching for these substances. Mm -hmm. And the difference is really uh, money. I mean, some people, I think Utah in particular, um, we are the, Utah is number one for, you know, prescription drug addiction. They can go to their doctor and get prescription drugs. So, you know, if you have a great insurance policy, you can be in your doctor's office and be a middle-aged lady who is highly addicted to Xanax and other, you know, Adderall and other things that are addressing what's going on in your life, so to speak. But um, I learned a healthier way and started learning about the microbiome and learning about gut health and nutrition. And And I want to find out more about that. But you said something uh, about your trauma. Now, in your recovery and in your road to sobriety, eventually you have to address that trauma. You have to. And, and you know what I mean? I mean, I think amino acids are a great way, and, and I think that helps you in your recovery. But if you don't go back and address those traumas that were handled, I'm, so you did do that, though. I did. And that's what I'm saying is I've always said, um, like Maple Mountain, uh, who I'm with now, the reason I've gone back is their trauma treatment is – Number one. So rather than, hey, we're going to meet with you once a week so someone comes for 30 days, you're not going to resolve that in four meetings one-on-one. You're barely going to start knowing the counselor that you're working with. They're barely going to know you. They do three days a week. They do neurofeedback. They do, you know, multiple modalities of uh, trauma treatment because they realize that if we don't get to root issues. Now, what I say is that mental health is like a big jigsaw puzzle and everyone's is different. The difference is that you've got this person that's highly skilled to help you with the trauma and this person that's helping you with the biochemical piece. I do think that so many people relapse when they leave traditional therapy or traditional because they're hanging on you're still engaging that frontal cortex and addictive things using enormous amounts of caffeine, using sugar. I was, I mean, I, at that point, I, you know, if they could have injected a sea sucker, I would have. I mean, I, I don't know anybody else, but I needed sugar and I needed it bad. And um, it was really just like, what do I need to do to keep it, uh, keep myself well? And um, these things are, again, just additional tools. 
And but if if someone gave me a tool that said, well, guess what? We've done this study, and when we bring on the use of amino acids and balance the brain and use nutrition, your long term success rates, and we address your trauma, trauma goes up to eighty seven percent. I'm much more pleased to deliver that message for myself and anyone else who needs help. What do you think, Doctor Matt? Sounds good. <laughs> well, well, what you're describing is what we often call wraparound services or care, right. and that is ideal. I mean, it absolutely is ideal. Um, I think that one of the probably the next evolution in mental health services is to figure out how to eliminate the roadblocks and create more access for people to come in and to come in earlier in the process for people to understand that you know. When I, when you were at the point of feeling stressed and overwhelmed and traumatized by children and divorce and business and all of those things, that would have been an ideal time. But most people, A, don't have access during that time because they haven't hit a crisis. And B, they, we still have a stigma around going in and getting mental health. But think about the progress and all the problems that could have been avoided potentially if you had been able to receive wraparound you know, multi-modalities of services at that time in your life. So I think what you're saying is ideal, and it's wonderful that there are more and more centers embracing that. I would just love to see it become a more common thing and move it up to the front instead of in the back when we have problems. So interesting. When you, when I left, um, I launched a, my own podcast, and I did 77 interviews with revolutionary people in the industry because I was so on this quest for my own growth, who or where am I going to go to stay in this line? And we're going to find out what she learned coming up in just a few seconds right here on Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Debbie Deborah Nelson. What do you go by? Debbie. Debbie, yeah, uh, and Debbie, she works at Maple Mountain. Uh, she's talked about uh, how at 38 she, because of trauma and some other things, uh, got addicted to alcohol and Adderall, uh, and then found herself in recovery. And then the thirst for more knowledge began. You started your own podcast. You said you interviewed over 77 uh, knowledgeable guests on different parts of. Uh, Recovery. Yeah. People that were, so it was um, addiction recovery revolution. It was revolutionary people in the industry that were making changes to change the statistics of outcome. Because we've talked about this, and, I, and I'm vocal about it. I'm not a 12-step member, uh, mm-hmm. but I, does the 12-step program work? Yeah, it works for some. Right. It doesn't work for all. Right. Uh, and we need to find different modalities. We need to find and search different things that work because there are so many different ways to get sober. Right. And so that sounds like you're on a quest for us. Uh, find- oh, absolutely. It didn't matter whether it was sound healing. It didn't matter whether it was neural feedback. It didn't matter it was biosound lounges, isochronic tones. Um, amino acid therapy was just another thing, but it also made sense to me that, um, you know, obviously my diet was heavily influencing how my mental health was. And if you're influencing your mental health, you're influencing your sobriety. Obviously, if I can't deal with my issues that are going on and stress and anxiety and sleep and everything else, then obviously those other substances sound really good still. Because you know they work. Anyone taking Adderall and then someone says, well, now we're taking this away from you. 
I don't think so. You don't want to. <laughs> you need a substitute. You, you do. And what I realized, though, was that I needed things that were going to build my dopamine receptors because that's what Adderall does. And when someone has the deficiency, I also – so becoming trained in amino acids, that light bulb went off because they were like, oh, yeah, well, a person that cuts, a person that is a thrill seeker, people that are addicted to opiates – people that are alcoholics it's endorphin deficiency how do you deal with endorphin deficiency there's there's amino acids that actually and there's scientific tests i mean there's neurochemists that are studying the saliva and urine and literally can come back and say this neurotransmitter is not working properly so when you have that information you all of a sudden say wow you mean there's something naturally that i can take that's good for me that's not going to hurt me that actually is going to help with my ADD. Now, understand, we all have predispositions for different things. I think sometimes a big part, too, is starting to do that therapeutic process of saying, that's just how my brain works. It's me. Okay? I'm okay with that. I know what I'm good at. I know that I'm not what so good. And as you get older, you're a little bit better at not camouflaging or feeling inadequate. I don't really care if I'm great at doing bookkeeping. Won't ever be good at. I don't care if I am good at it. I don't beat myself up. But there's someone that is. So you know, there's all different aspects of it. But so the amino acid and and the neurochemistry piece, along with the trauma piece, I felt like the evolution of treatment is now here. Because before, most people used to hear not that long ago that if they didn't employ or go for a twelve step program or readily that they were doomed. It was kind of like apostatizing from a church. I mean, you're not a part of 12-step, you're going to be dead. Well, that 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 is something that's been out there. And over 20 years ago when I started graduate school, I remember sitting in a seminar uh, and being told that uh, less than 50% of the people that need AA go to AA. So mm-hmm. there's a problem right there. Then after the first meeting of AA, less than 50% of those people ever come back for a second because they didn't feel like it was a good fit. So, and then I think it's, you know, less than 50% of those folks, you know, follow all the way through to the 12 steps. So now we're realizing, wow, we're really only capturing a small percentage, but for the people that it works for, that's wonderful. And, and I, hopefully people who've listened to our show understand that even though Casey's not a 12 stepper, uh, and we present lots of other modalities where we don't have anything against 12 steps, but it is a small percentage of folks that really find their recovery through 12 steps. So what else can there be? And, and nowadays, you know, 20 years later, we have a lot of things available to us. I think the listeners would love to hear, can you walk us through what you would do with a person in amino acid therapy? Like what, like, could you just kind of give us a brief example of a general case of if somebody came in and wanted to try that, what would that look like? So there's two different things. Maple Mountain actually has a functional medicine doctor that is phenomenal. And Nicole Zeiner, there's functional medicine tests that can tremendously pinpoint exactly. Now, if you don't have that, I always said I didn't start that way. It was just symptomatically, like I read so the they mood can run here. tests up front they can and they can and, identify your right. deficiencies. And, and address that down to a science but also just symptomatically through the mood cure that's how i started i didn't have money and when people say well i don't have money i said, well you you have to choose where you find your money because i did you know and i started buying supplements and started training i went through the training became a, a coach with it and the more that i learned about it the more it was so an example that most people will know for an amino acid for instance is tryptophan because it's in turkey we all know that we get sleepy when we take you know, we eat thanksgiving dinner 
But what turkey has is an amino acid called tryptophan in it. And when our body gets a dose of tryptophan, it says, oh, I need to make serotonin. It's a precursor to serotonin. So there's nutritional things that we can do, but there's also a supplement. So when we're handing the body the serotonin, when we have enough serotonin, we sleep well. We have good sleep patterns. Um, we're happy. We deal with stress better. When we're depleted of that due to trauma going on in our life, diet, lifestyle, whatever, drinking obviously is not going to help. Um, uh, and people should know, uh, you know, the medicine equivalent of that would be like Prozac right. and the SSRI families of medications. But what you're saying is a person can have that effect more naturally by right. by taking a tryptophan supplement. Right. Is that available? Well, yeah. And so or what do you happens, just have to like turkey a lot? No, there's supplements. So uh, Maple Mountain has their whole, we've got a neurochemist that came up with protocols that build neurotransmitters and start healing the brain. Because if we start healing the brain, it's miraculous that you can start getting how much more from your therapy. You can feel better. Again, it's not an anti-medication or a fight because there's medication, there's a place for it. And there's a lot of people that uh, have an aversion to the Prozacs and those of the world. And I can tell you this, and I know we're on KSL Radio and all that stuff, but guys didn't want to take it because it messed with their sexual libido. Yep. Well, and it, it does for women too. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yep. Guys and, are just a little more concerned about that usually. I mean, I, honestly, yeah. I was sitting in the group and they're like, you're going to do this. He was like, I don't want to take it, man, because I don't want to ruin that. You know? <laughs> like, well. I was like, I'm in rehab, so I'm not really relying on this right now. You yeah. know what I mean? But let's, let's see not what happens. Not my number one concern. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but that's, but that is a general concern. And we've had people on here who have said that. You know what I mean? That it, it, yeah. it numbs them. Yeah, and you, uh, it's a small percentage, by the way. Yeah. It's not it's not a large percentage of people. Small that, percentage, that but a lot struggle of people are talking with their about it. libido. Um, and for a lot of those people, uh, it just is an adjustment issue. And after about a month to two months, it, your libido comes back. So for some people, it is a big problem. Certainly, uh, you have to weigh your options sometimes and say, "What's the right. bigger problem? That yeah. I'm depressed right. and suicidal, or that right. I'm having a hard time with the bedroom?" So yeah. This so. was just this is another tool that kind of level up. You know, and also a light bulb went off, like nutritional speaking. Um, I changed completely, for, re, rechanged my thought process as to how much my diet was influencing my mood. I saw things totally different and saw how much sugar actually causes a lot of the problems related to the anxiety, the caffeine. Um, you know, and you see that population at women, it's more so like women, especially you start, you know, you're putting on the weight, you're putting on the weight afterwards, afterwards, everyone's Which gaining all weight. is a legitimate right. uh, emotional concern because right. getting to, to all of a sudden, you know, be overweight right. and not fitting in your clothing and feeling unattractive definitely makes your mood take a dive in, right. in a real way. So you have to be careful of what you're putting in your body. I, as new to Utah, as a person who's new to Utah, I want to know what you think about our biggest uh, addiction problem here, the drive through soda mixer places. I, like, what do you think about all these people just down in the 44 ounces? It's a culture thing. I think when I got here, I've never seen anything. I said I'm in the land of so delicious and... And cookie crumble. But I'm telling people right now, if you have an addiction issue, that is your number one trigger. You should be looking at these things as huge triggers. And if you don't and don't want to 
loan up to the science behind how it affects your brain. Sugar is equivalent to cocaine to the brain. So, you know, well, it's both sugar and caffeine are neurostimulants right. and they're cheap ones. They're not they're not these big bang like cocaine. Right. But in many ways, that's worse because of their subtle effects over time. Uh, you build up a toxicity in your body. Right. And I can tell you a friend I grew up with was telling me one day he was had been up for several days studying for this big college final back in the days of college and he was driving over to the university to go take his college final and he thought he was having a heart attack he kind of pulled over to the side of the road and put the car in park he he had all the symptoms of a heart attack you know the sweating and the chest pain and numbness and all of those things and in the end he was diagnosed with a caffeine induced panic disorder but it took the the folks in the er a minute to figure out this wasn't a heart attack because the symptoms were so similar because he had been up drinking mountain dews and cokes uh for days at a time and so i think that it's it's really damaging what happens to our bodies but here in the state of utah uh because the culture shifts away from uh the the things like alcohol and cigarettes but it has shifted towards the yeah. sugars and the caffeines. Yeah, big time. I've never seen, I mean, it's huge anywhere, but this culturally, I would say definitely. And anybody that's dealing with addiction issues, if they don't reel that piece in, it, 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 I see them as... Uh, well, that's almost the joke, right? Like you go to an AA meeting, and it's like people are just shifting addictions now. Yep. It's cigarettes and coffee, and it used and to be sugar. alcohol, right? Yeah, donuts, cigarettes, sugar. coffee, right. those are all on the table. Right. And I think, to be fair, a lot of AA f- meetings have tried to do away with that. But the shifting of addictions is a real problem. Right. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So if people want to find out more information, uh, Debbie, about Maple Mountain and the holistic approach and the neuroscience and the amino acids and all that, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I mean, Maple Mountain, well, number one, you start with the Google because it, it will bring them to our website that will teach them exactly how, how and why we're different and what they're doing differently. It is cutting edge. We've brought on neurochemistry, functional medicine testing. We have intense trauma treatment. We already had an outstanding, they have an outstanding trauma treatment program. So it's paired together. But it's it's an educational piece that when people find it, all of a sudden for the first time, they're like, I didn't know that there was all of this that's available. I didn't know that there was so many things that can help me with my mental health. And we've changed it. We're primary mental health. Uh, Maple Mountain is because we, we firmly believe it's it's the mental health that comes first and the byproduct of mental health is addiction. And that's what's reversed is that traditional treatment is we have addiction with mental health. No, we have mental health issues with addiction. So what you're saying is, and I think this would be fantastic, let's say somebody's listening to the show and they've never necessarily considered themselves an addict, that they, 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 they don't drink alcohol, they don't use prescription drugs inappropriately, et cetera, but they're listening to this today and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I might have a problem with the drive through soda mixer places and I might have a problem with sugar and caffeine. They could come and, and, and get some help with you guys? Well, I don't even know the sugar, but what I'm saying is the mental health, because what we have is a crisis of people on Xanax that don't know where to go. 
because they they don't consider themselves an addict. They consider themselves medically dependent, and they don't know how to find mental health that's really going to help them get off of that. We have an epidemic of people who are medication resistant. They're on enormous amounts of psychiatric medications. Nothing's helped. So primary uh, mental health is now scaling up and, and introducing science where typically in this field it's always been symptomatically diagnosed and you have this disorder, you have this one, this is your DSM code, but nobody's looking at the science behind what's driving it or the neurological problems or the psychological problems. So now all of a sudden it's it's amazing to hear a neurochemist say, well, you actually have a bacterial infection that caused the anxiety and someone has suffered from it for 20 years, taking high doses of Xanax, we have someone in our center who has uh, mold toxicity. Okay, if you have been exposed to mold, you are going to have enormous amounts of anxiety if you have Lyme disease. So there's many, many other contributing factors. So we have a population of people that are medication-dependent, med-resistant. And I would say uh, some of these medications, I think Xanax, truthfully, anyone that's on a benzodiazepine, it makes heroin look easy. Because their central nervous system, and that's their only... So if that is your only coping mechanism, how do you help a person? Otherwise, it's just we're taking you off the Xanax, and it's just like me going off of Adderall. What do you mean? I have a legitimate issue. How am I going to deal with this now? What do you mean I can't take Adderall? I personally had evolved to a point where it's like, yeah, I don't want to take the high doses. So Wow. She's got a lot of information, a lot of energy, and I am so grateful that she stopped by the show today to talk about all the wonderful things that they're doing at Maple Mountain and through your recovery. So as of today, how long have you been sober? Eight years. Congratulations. That's amazing. Way to go. Dr. Matt, any last thoughts? I love it. I love the idea of making, I guess I would call it a proper diagnosis before we go down the path of treatment, and that means we ought to utilize the science that's available to us and uh, makes a lot of sense. And I certainly have met folks that when they've done what you're talking about, it makes all the difference in the world. So I, I appreciate what you guys do. And Thanks. I want to thank everybody for stopping by and uh, letting us into your ears. Uh, we do appreciate it. You're listening to Project Recovery brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case they forgot, Dr. Matt, Project Recovery is what? You know, it's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. 
I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.